Hey everyone, my name is Daphne Rock and welcome to the Green Renaissance. In every episode, I speak with people who work towards a sustainable future and we discuss how they got to where they are now. This episode features Paul Newnham, who worked for over a decade in the humanitarian sector, spending over 15 years at World Vision, which is an international organization that focuses on overcoming poverty and injustice. Paul is currently the director of the UN's SDG2 Advocacy Hub. So the United Nations has 17 Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, that aim to build a better future for everyone by 2030. And as director of the SDG2 Hub, Paul focuses on the second goal, which works towards zero hunger and good food for all. In this episode, we'll learn about why we must reframe conversations about global issues like hunger, and whether there is a single sustainable diet that everyone should follow. And without further ado, here is episode two. Thank you, Paul, for joining us all the way from Melbourne. Could you speak about your work journey starting at World Vision and how that has helped you to direct the SDG2 hub and focus on food systems? When I first started out, I never thought that this was exactly where I would end up. I um, had grown up traveling around the world, seeing different parts of the world, but didn't really fully appreciate what the opportunities were. And then I applied for this job at World Vision in Australia and and I got this job and it, it opened up all these pathways. I was able to work in developing advocacy platforms, marketing, communications, and being able to be exposed around the world. And so Moving through that, I asked lots of questions. I I thought lots about how do you market and engage with people around issues like hunger, around issues like community development or agriculture and, and those kinds of things. We had to really think a lot about people and how do people engage in these issues. And so as we did that, it made us question a lot some of the traditional ways that you communicate we're talking about hunger and yet that can kind of make people feel guilty so how do we then move that emotional side into talking about food which is is something different so all that to say i learned a lot through making mistakes at world vision i also had lots of opportunity and that opportunity helped me to get to the point where now i was invited to help lead this sustainable development goal to advocacy hub It's interesting because I read an article that you wrote where you spoke about the importance of communication and you highlighted hunger and how to make sure we think about food and not be so guilty. I think that's so relevant today. And well, in my final year of university, I did my research paper on how consumers perceive the environmental impact of plant-based diets. And no matter how much information we read about the environmental impact or the ethical issues behind it of eating meat. I mean, we don't really react on guilt. It seems like there's another level we need to step up to, to actually make a decision. So is that what you mean when you say thinking about food rather than hunger? Yeah. When I was working at World Vision, I ended up, I studied community development and then ended up working in the marketing communication side. And so when you're in the marketing communication side, you're essentially trying to raise funds. You're trying to get people engaged. You know, it's easy to make someone feel guilty and then get them to respond. They, you know, they feel guilty. So they dig in their pocket and they give you some money. 
but that doesn't necessarily change and engage their heart. It doesn't engage their mind. It doesn't help them to think about the issue. The reaction that they go through is person in my way, I feel guilty. I give them money. I then can get on with my life. And so it doesn't change any behavior. And so while that works, it's a short-term solution because if you really want to drive long-term change, like you were talking about with plant-based foods, you have to really understand what, what's the motivations that people go through. And guilt is a motivator, but it's a negative motivator. And so when you think about that, you don't think about food as a negative. You think about food as a positive. Food is something that connects us. It connects us to where we grew up, who we are, to different places. And so it's a very positive thing on the whole. Even people that don't have food will have memories that are good about food. And so you want to think about that and think about how you bring that together. As we went through, we started to talk about how do you create more positive ways to engage people and almost make the solution also connect with the joy of life, like the vision of what you want to achieve, not just the problem that you see. So now you're leading the UN's advocacy hub for zero hunger and you launched um, the Chef's Manifesto, which is a network of over 800 chefs around the world. And you discuss problems across the food systems and solutions. How have you applied this knowledge on framing the conversation around food differently in order to have long-term engagement? Our goal with this hub is to really connect the people working across private sector, UN and civil society, to really drive forward goals around nutrition, agriculture, hunger. And so when we looked at this, we said, okay, there's often a very technical conversation that's had. Mm -hmm. And we talk about the science, we talk about the you know nutrients, we talk about agriculture with like inputs and outputs. It's all very disconnected from food, which is the way that most people enjoy getting nutrients. It's the way most of us interact. And so we started to say, well, who tells a really good story about food and how do we bring in new voices to talk about this? And, and so we, we identified that chefs, which had this kind of celebrity status in lots of parts of the world, and that had access to so many parts of the world, from canteens and schools, through to restaurants, to corporate, to all kinds of places, they're chefs. And so we started to look and say, well, where and how do chefs engage in sustainability? And we found there was lots of chefs doing great stuff. But there was a challenge because some chefs were working on food waste, some were working on biodiversity, others were working on livelihood issues. There was all different things. But it wasn't necessarily connected at the global level to any kind of global plan. And so we went about saying, how do we connect what chefs do every day to the sustainable development goals, the UN goals that every country in the world signed on to? And so we co-created with chefs this framework of eight thematic areas and a whole action plan that connects the work chefs do every day in the kitchen with the sustainable development goals. So it was this way of bringing in new champions and then growing a network that can talk about food in a really human way. Apart from being a network with over 800 chefs, the Chef's Manifesto is also a podcast. And um, it's one of my favorite because I learned so much about food. It's from the Chef's Manifesto that I learned about millets because I hadn't heard about that grain before. And apparently it's, it's way more 
environmentally sustainable than rice because it requires much less water to grow and it's also healthier. So yeah, I love that podcast. When you first directed the SDG2 hub, what were your expectations and how do they differ to how the hub evolved? When I started, I mean, this was a concept and an idea that a number of organizations had kind of said this is something that they believed really was important in this time of the sustainable development goals to bring together these communities. And so my expectations, I think, were that this was going to be exciting to try and find a way to bring these groups together. But it's always more challenging than you think. There's always more hurdles that come up. There's lots of people doing really, really good things that are very technical and they're very focused. And so when you're trying to get them to work together, it's about helping to convene and connect them. And that takes time. It's a lot of relationship building, a lot of engagement. My role is to support this network and to kind of lead the team that's helping do that and really try and problem solve, come up with strategies, work with people and get overall the forward movement and that's super challenging because the world keeps changing as well when we started in the last four or five years the acceleration of change has been great there's lots of things happening on the political level on the societal level at the in between countries and so you're constantly having to pivot to rethink to recalibrate and also there's like huge pressure at the moment to accelerate because we're running out of time things are really starting to happen fast Um, around our climate, um, around biodiversity. And so we have to move faster. And so that's really challenging, I think. I read that COVID-19 uncovered flaws in the food system. Did some of these flaws come as a surprise? And how did the SDG2 pivot to try to tackle these, the mentioned flaws? What we saw with the pandemic was that it really reinforced the urgency and the need for intersectional action. Mm -hmm. intersectoral action. So it really showed that we are more vulnerable than we think. The system that we've built is actually quite vulnerable. So, you know, in many parts of the world, you were in the UK, I was in the UK. For the first time, you saw empty shelves in supermarkets. And that didn't take very much to happen. People bought a few extra items and all of a sudden the shelves are empty. And that's in the UK. So you can imagine in other parts of the world what that could have looked like as well. Our food system had problems and and so this exposed some of them. And so it may also us really think about the connection between human health, like what we eat and our immunity system and how our nutrition actually makes an impact. So it's been, you know, really interesting to think about that. At the same time, there in 2021, there's been planned a, a UN food system summit that the Secretary General's called, and that process had begun before the COVID happened. And so I think as you start to think about the opportunities as we go forward are that we can really think about food being one of the drivers of how we build back. You know, we have the opportunity when when things stop or when things break not just to replace, like just get them back to the same level that they were, but to really rebuild them and think differently. And so I think we're at this point now where we can kind of think about how we can build back in a better way. I've read a few papers about how the food system and in fact other industries need to tackle their obstacles through a systems thinking approach where you you would consider all the factors that are related and you incorporate it into your model in some way. Going back to the SDG2 hub, 
and how solutions need to be integrated with other things as well. Um, to what extent does the SDG2 hub collaborate with other, other hubs to achieve um, good food for all and uh, the Agenda 2030? Because zero hunger over, overlaps with other goals like no poverty, good health and well-being, climate action and all that. So how do you collaborate with other hubs? We collaborate a lot with others. So we collaborate with a lot of networks as well, like uh, particularly around agricultural networks in different regions, uh, nutrition networks, different civil society networks, private sector networks. So there's lots of different networks out there that are working on different issues. We've worked with like the energy network that's looking at energy because energy is, is a key connector to food production, food storage, education. You know, with school feeding programs, it connects very much to education. It connects to gender. You know, there's lots of issues around in agriculture around land ownership by women and access. You know, I think in some parts of the world, you know, I think the ownership of land by women is is in the low percentages, you know, 10, 15 or less. And then yet they do 95% of the work. And so there's a lot of discrepancies on different issues, but they also connect into this issue. And so you have to see the sustainable development goals as a set of goals of 17 integrated goals. Yeah. But what we do is make sure that goal two is not forgotten within those goals. How do you measure the outcomes for SDG2 and which, which ones would be tricky to measure? At the global level, trying to come up with outcomes is very tricky. Um, and, and working out who did what and how did it happen is usually a, a big combination of things. In terms of measuring and tracking progress against the goals, there is measurements which are done by UN agencies. And so the Food and Agriculture Organization each year runs a report called the SOFI report, which is the state of food insecurity. Mm -hmm. And it has a measurement scheme that's lined up for the goals and the sub goals. And it then looks at and tracks how we're we going on number of hungry people. And it does like reported number of hungry people, but then also people who feel that they have food insecurity. And then it looks at nutrition levels. Are people getting adequate diet? And then there's a number of other reports and organizations that collaborate to create and fill the gaps where there is gaps around data points. But the actual advocacy measurement is really challenging because it's hard for us to work out which part of the advocacy process actually made the impact or the decision because there's often an instigation you know like something built you know something builds towards it but then there's a trigger point that actually maybe leads to that decision being acted on i read a book that said that um, it's called food fix by dr mark hyman and it said that uh, we have more than enough food in the world uh, to feed everyone today um, yet almost 700 million people go to bed hungry and one in three people are overweight or obese. And that just, it struck me because it contradicts itself. Could you explain this issue in more detail and whether you've, not whether you've tackled the work directly, but um, outline how the SDG2 Hub has worked or is working towards building a more equitable food system? So we do a, a range of things. We bring people together so that we can have more consistent messaging. So that when we're going to governments, when we're going to other actors in terms of private companies, in terms of civil society, UN agencies, 
there's more collaboration and there's more connection between what we're asking for. And so the SDG2 hub helps to drive that. We've done that through the Good Food for All uh, platform, which we've built, and through helping drive that conversation so that we can do it. Um, in terms of what we're really working on, we're looking at a range of priorities and they're around different areas. And so in agriculture, it's really looking at how we support smallholder farmers, how we look at research that is climate smart and nutrition sensitive. So research into different agricultural um, areas that really drives um, something that's better for people and planet. You know, there was a recent publication in Science which concluded that even if we stopped all carbon emissions, we wouldn't achieve the Paris Agreement due to the impact of food systems on the planet. And so it, it really kind of highlighted the, the link for more integrated thinking. You know, we can't tackle one issue without tackling all the issues. And food systems are one big mega connecting system. Yeah, I'm learning more and more that it's definitely connected to so many things and issues around the world. And I find that with food, it's it's so hard for me to, to know whether I'm making the right decision. And sometimes I'm a bit scared about what I consume and, and, and what I buy at supermarkets because I'm just like, is this actually good for me and bad for the environment? I find that I need much more information about what I consume, and but there's not enough. And also it depends on which part of the world you are in. Um, yeah, Going back to the Chef's Manifesto, you mentioned that you focus on eight thematic areas um, yeah. that can apply to chefs around the world, no matter what country or culture that they're in. But could you explain how exactly these themes are translated across different cultures? We try and work with credible science. And so we, we would look at how, what science says for us to do. And so if you think about, you know, a piece of science that's come out, the Lancet report, which talked about how do we feed a planet with 10 million people in, in 2050. And so it talked about a shift in diet and it gave a, a reference diet, which got a lot of press around the world, mainly because of the reduction in animal-based proteins that it had. But it actually, if you read the report, the report talks very clearly that different parts of the world needed to make different shifts. So in certain parts of the world, people needed to eat less animal-based protein. In other parts, they needed to eat more. In all parts, people needed more leafy greens. You know, So there was kind of ups and downs, starchy vegetables were too much in Africa. So there was like different elements. So with the Chef's Manifesto, what we do is we look at these thematic areas and we look at how do you prioritize based on location? Because at the end of the day, you know, we all live in a space and a place and that space and a place comes with cultural history, with economic, societal challenges, all kinds of issues. It also has very different environmental issues. So you have to take the the science, you have to look at it and then you need to work out how to interpret it. So for example, we didn't say everyone should be plant-based because not everyone should. We said that focusing on plant-based ingredients is really important because in many parts of the world, we focus on animal-based ingredients in the way that we do our cooking. And so it's about saying, well, let's champion different diversity on plant-based. You know, that's an example. We talked about on waste, we didn't talk about waste, we talked about valuing natural resources. So it's a different pivot where you start to say, how do we value resources? What does that look like in Peru, in India, in China? And then you start to think about it um, differently. 
what have you learned from your work in food systems and in, in making it better? What have you learned in that area? One of the biggest things is, and, and this, this goes to like my whole career, is that most of the time the answers are locally found. Do you know what I mean? The answers are within culture somewhere, within community somewhere. Often Indigenous communities hold lots of solutions, but then it's a question of how do you take those solutions and make them scale, make them connect, you know, make them work. What I, I've learned is that when you go to a community, you've got to be very observant. You've got to look and you've got to listen mm -hmm. and you've got to kind of understand the differences and the nuances. One example that one of our chefs talks about regularly is he talks about palm oil. And generally around the world, most people will, you know, say eating palm oil is bad because of the orangutans. Yeah. Um, because we're cutting down forests um, to grow palm oil to put into things. But he lives in Nigeria and he said in Nigeria, we have red palm oil, which is slightly different to the palm oil that everyone talks about. It's actually incredibly, as an ingredient, it's very dense in nutrients and um, is really, really good for you. But he says, I go, he goes out into the community in Nigeria and people will say you shouldn't eat palm oil because of the orangutans. And he's like, the reality is there's no orangutans in Nigeria where this red palm oil is from. And yet this thing that was grown locally that's very high in nutrients is now not being eaten because of this global story of palm oil is bad. And so there's a, to me what that highlights is there's just not one size that fits at all. There's certain things, but you've got to interpret them. So you've got to look at a better way is to say the ingredients we eat shouldn't have an impact in this way. And then you go, okay, well, let's look at what that looks like in this part of the world rather than blanket banning certain things and communicating them at a level that then can be misunderstood in other parts of the world. That's quite a tricky thing because as an average consumer, having the message that palm oil is bad, it simplifies my decision-making process much more. There's nothing wrong with that in terms of that's fine, but what you then need to do is, is think about, well, what are the unintended consequences of that? What do you mean by unintended consequences? When you start thinking about that on the whole, there's no big issue because you're like, yeah, palm oil is bad, you know, in, in what the kind of palm oil you're talking about. But this is just an example where yeah. an unintended consequence has been that some people who have a different type of palm oil have also thought that's bad when it's actually not necessarily bad. Do you know what I mean? And so that's an unintended consequence. And that's, that's, that happens a lot in the food system where you might go, well, we ban, you know, there's a lot of conversation that's happened over the years around fat is bad. There's lots of diet advice and nutrition yeah. advice and, and people will say, this is bad and this is good. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, it's actually not all fats are bad. Actually, you know, there's good fats and there's bad fats, but you simplify it and all of a sudden it becomes problematic because it gets amplified and then people follow it religiously and then you end up with unintended consequences. Working in marketing and communications, what steps have you found to be helpful when you want to change the narrative somehow and change how we think? Might be such a broad question, but... Yeah, I mean, it's a hard one. Yeah, yeah no, it's a hard one, Daphne. Um, I think that the challenge is that you've got to... Sometimes you've got to accept that there's going to be an unintended consequence. You know, you've got to think about what's the greater good. But the key is, is to try and educate people. Mm -hmm. So it's about giving people the information so that they can make choices. 
and they can then ask questions about their food. It's like there are trust marks out there. There are things like Fair Trade and Rainforest Alliance, which are groups that have said, we've done the work for you, consumer. We've checked this out and we think it's good. And that's a good starting point to look for those kinds of things, you know, organic, different labels. The challenge is when you start to get into the detail behind them, there's always more questions. There's always more conversation, you know, like on plant-based um, food, you know, I think plant-based food is great. You know, we are almost 95%, 99% plant-based. The challenge is for me is plant-based also should be good for people. Often it's sold as it's good for the climate. And so food that we're working on these kinds of areas, we need to think about where there's one, two, three different impacts rather than just single issue impacts. When you said that you were 95% plant-based, were you referring to your family or just you personally? It's mainly um, my wife and I, and then our kids have reduced significantly animal-based food. So because we're plant-based, they have gone from like, we grew up with meat and three vegetables on the plate was kind of the way you built your meal. Moving into this space, understanding a lot more about it, we started to shift towards more plant-based food and then we decided, look, we really need to do this. And then our kids, as a result, you know, they now maybe animal-based proteins, you know, once or twice a week rather than having it five to six times a week. This might be a bit of a silly question. Have you changed your diet after moving from the United Kingdom to Australia? Because you know how we try to promote eating locally. So has your diet changed after moving? So it has actually, because one of the first things we noticed, the UK has moved and embraced plant-based food in a much bigger way than Australia has. And the UK still, you know, for people that eat plant-based, they still feel it's probably nowhere near enough, but it is shifting quite a lot in, in the UK. In Australia, our feeling and our experience so far is that it hasn't shifted as quickly. And that's been challenging because you can't find all the same ingredients. There's not the variety of plant-based alternatives and things like that. You obviously can get the same fresh fruit and vegetables. And so that's not a big difference. But, you know, in terms of alternate protein sources and things like that, the UK has far bigger range. But it just requires a bit of creativity. And luckily, we've got cookbooks and things like that. And, you know, we, we experiment and, and just create some of our own stuff. Having worked in the humanitarian sector for, is it over two decades or? Yeah. And you worked on such challenging global issues. What keeps you motivated and what developments excite you? It has been quite a journey. What I get excited about is when I see progress. And sometimes on the global scene, progress is, is hard to see because it kind of feels like it's always a bit of a challenge. But when you look over a longer period, you look at the numbers and you say, you know, X number of years ago, there was this many people that were hungry and now we're at this many. But sometimes those numbers don't necessarily look smaller, but we forget that the world is continuing to grow. So population's growing. So when you look at percentages, you know, you see these things. Often there's, there's other issues. So I get motivated by seeing that progress, by seeing the change. But the real motivation comes where you connect with individuals that are really bringing about change and moving forward. And so that happens regularly where you get to see the work and you see the difference being made in individuals' lives and you see progress happening at that local level. Are there specific projects that 
um, that excite you or that um, make you look forward to the future? A friend, a friend of mine is um, working on a project. So um, I don't know whether most people don't necessarily connect that in order for our food system to function, we require bees. Mm-hmm. Bees are the un, unpaid worker of the food system. Without bees, we don't get pollination, which means plants don't fruit. And so when you think about it, this pollination process doesn't happen without bees. There's been lots of diseases that have been impacting bee stocks around the world. And these diseases threaten basically to wipe out whole hives and decimate bee populations. And so because of that, our food system becomes vulnerable. And so there's a friend of mine who started work a long time ago on a small island in the Pacific called Niue, working with a number of bees there and hives. And because this place is so far away from anywhere else, surrounded by ocean, it's got a natural biosecurity barrier. And so the bees there are not affected by any of the disease. They're very passive and easy to work with. And so he has worked with this beekeeper and they're working to build the first world bee sanctuary, which will protect bees and this bee stock so that if anything happens globally, these bees can be used to repopulate different parts of the world. So it's a really cool thing. And they've created a brand called New A Honey and the honey is really, really good for you. So they're starting to sell that and then the money goes towards uh, doing that. So it's, it's a kind of a cool project. Wow, really great initiative. My last question for you would be, what's your main goal for the next five years? I think it's really, you know, the next five years, we have to see significant transformation of our food system. If we don't change it in the next five years, um, there could be unavoidable consequences for human health and planetary health. And so we really need to see a commitment at a global level by different countries to really, really drive change. Thank you so much. It was really inspiring speaking to you and I learned so much from this conversation. No, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to episode two with Paul Newnham. If you feel like you enjoyed this episode and learned a lot about food systems like I did, please subscribe to this podcast and share it with your family and friends.